So there was this, this event that is recorded in Exodus chapter 20 where many, many years before there had been a family, a man singled out who had some experiences with God. His first name was Abram. His name was changed by God to Abraham because God saw something about this man a willingness to be devoted. It wasn't that he was perfect, but it was a, a willingness to be able to take a journey with God. Because he was willing to take the journey with God, I just stirred me up. Are you willing to take a journey with God? I got to go there. <laughs> he was willing to take a journey with God. And because of it, God changed his name to Abraham, father of nations. He was, he was childless. Yet God changed his name to Father of Nations because he was willing to go there. I want you to go to a place that you're not familiar with, you've never been there, leave your family, leave everything else behind, leave your heritage, leave the security of family, leave the security of a known place and just take a journey with me. It's going to be good. I'm going to make a place for your family. So God changed his name to Abraham and took him to a land that was already inhabited by other people. There were people in that place that weren't honoring God. They weren't living the way they were supposed to. But God took Abraham there. And in the process of taking him through this journey, God began to reveal himself in different, different ways and started giving. There were events in his life. There were moments in, in his life where he had an experience with God where God showed himself to Abraham in a different way, revealed his character, revealed God's character and nature to him so that he could understand who this God was that he was working with. Abraham did not have a Bible. He did not have the internet. He did not have someone that he could go to and say, so what is this God like? With Abraham, it was a personal one-on-one -on -one experience. He was walking with God. He was talking with God. He didn't have a book to pick up and read about him. You ever thought about that? But he was interacting with God. He was sharing life with God, and God was sharing life with him. So he had a dynamic, new, and unique experience with God. Later, in, later Abraham's descendants, generations down the road, ended up going down to, to Egypt because they were desperate for food. So they went down to Egypt because Egypt had storehouses of food. God had made provision in a supernatural way. And so he ended up going, his descendants go down there for food. Abraham's already dead and gone generations before, but they ended up staying in that land. They become enslaved in that land. So this people who are called to be a nation to honor God and to serve God are now in bondage. Can you imagine? Just think how long our nation has been here. In 1776, we declared our independence from the mother country, from England, and we wanted to be a, a, a nation unto ourselves. Well, that's 200 and years ago. But the, the, the descendants of Abraham spent 400 years in Egypt. I mean, can you imagine do, if you are an American-born person, you don't have an identity necessarily outside of the United States as far as another nation. But this nation's only been in existence for 200 and some years. What about the people of the, the children of Abraham? They had been there for 400 years, so their whole culture and understanding, even though they knew that they were descendants of Abraham, they were wrapped up in Egypt. 
The only problem was their experience in Egypt was that they had been enslaved. The Egyptian king saw them as a threat, and they enslaved them and tried to subdue them and, and, and keep them down. So for 400 years they were that way, and then all of a sudden they come out of slavery by a, 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 just a dramatic move of God. And every Easter you get to see the Ten Commandments on TV with Charlton Heston um, holding up that staff. I won't go to my story about the staff. Yeah, well, I, I got inspired one day and went down to Lake Wilson, and, and I always like to pick up a stick when I go through the woods, and I was feeling really good that day. I mean, if there's ever a day that you've got it, it hadn't been that day, Chris. I mean, I was feeling the power of God. And I went out there to Lake Wilson, and I had that stick that I'd picked up in the woods, Lou. I'd been clearing branches and things out of my way, and I went out there, and I said, Lord, why not today? And I don't think a duck moved. <laughs> that wasn't my moment. But my, my point that I'm supposed to be getting to is the fact that the children of Israel, God moved on their behalf, and God parted the Red Sea for them. It was their moment. God delivered them and brought them out to a a place that they were not familiar with. And they are completely stripped of the identity that they knew. The only thing that for generations that they had grown up with was slavery. Being beaten, being, being oppressed, and being, and being held down. But God brought them out of that place and brought them and, and gave them a new identity. But here they are, just like we talked today about how society is spinning out of control around us that drugs is becoming the norm and, and corruption is becoming the norm and immorality is becoming the norm and, and brokenness in homes and families and people are struggling to get by. And people, you know, I went to the, the uh, um, addiction, not addiction, but the overdose awareness event down at, at um, it was down at the courthouse a couple of weeks ago where they were down there, people who were trying to help with... with um, with overdose and addiction, we're down there. And, and folks, there's a great need. We've got a few people in our congregation that are go going to be going to recovery coaching training that's going to be provided by the community. There's a grant that's been given. So there's a few people that are talking about going and being a part of that so that they will have some tools and equipment. And part of the thing that we've had to deal with was, look, I mean, just getting over the fact that I don't understand that culture. I don't understand what that's like. I said, that's okay. These people need someone who can give them hope and tell them what life can be like. They need to be able to see the other side of the fence. Amen. So to, to get, just give some hope. But folks, when a, uh, when a community or a, a, a culture is spiraling out of control like that, you know, we don't want to get to the point where there's no recovery and it just completely collapses and goes away. The children of Israel were coming out of an experience where it had only been slavery. It had only been idolatry around them. They didn't even know who their God was. They didn't know how to live for him. So God had to bring them to a place of an encounter with him so that there could be a God experience that would bring foundation and bring stability and bring strength and so they could understand how to live and what was right and what was wrong because when those moral lines or those ethical lines are so blurred and it only becomes me, 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 it doesn't matter what I do to you as long as my needs are met. It doesn't matter how you get hurt as long as I get what I want. When ethics go out of the window, when morality goes out of the window to the point to where it's only about me, I will kill you if you hurt my feelings. I will kill you if you do something. If that is what our culture comes to, folks, we're in a bad place. We're in a desperate place. 
So God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and took them to a mountain, Mount Sinai. And on that mountain, God came down not just to meet with Moses. He came to meet with the people, but the people were afraid. And they said, Moses, you know, we don't want God to speak to us. You go and, and you talk to God for us. You go here for God. And let me just tell you, folks, and it's happened in the body of Christ too. But a lot of people are like, we don't want to spend time with God. We're still busy. Pastor, would you go to God and hear from God for us? And then we'll come back on Sunday morning and you could talk to us and tell him what God said. Folks, there's so much more than that. Don't put me in that position. What if I miss it? There's a lot of churches where people's lives fell apart because their faith was in a man standing behind a pulpit. And when that man had an issue, they had no stability. And so they fell apart. Or they, became, they were pointing fingers at him because he failed us. Well, he may have failed you. But you failed yourself by not having a personal relationship with God. You have the ability to talk to him. You don't need a mediator anymore. You can go directly to God. Can you ever th think about the fact that you've got a hotline to heaven? It's not a bat phone. You've got your own hotline to heaven. All you've got to do is ask. Just talk to him. You might have to tune your own hearing just a little bit to be able to understand where it is when he's speaking in your, in your mind. He may not speak with this booming voice from heaven with a big white beard or some kind of image that we have of God. But he'll speak to you. He may ask a question, and then you find out that that day or day in that week, there's a conversation that comes back to you, which is exactly what you've been talking about to God about, but God's speaking to you through another voice, or something may pop up on TV that talks about that, or maybe if you've got your Bible, you turn to a scripture, and there all of a sudden is a scripture exactly about what God, that you were talking to God about, and God's speaking to you. Because he loves you that much. God took this people to this mountain so that he could show them what his expectations, to show them how powerful his God was. Because one expectation is we come to that mountain, we see lightning and fire and smoke and billowing and rumble and the ground shaking. And, and we think, oh my God, I'm afraid of him. And the other spec, aspect of that is, look, if we're his people, we can turn around and say, look, folks, that's my God. That's the God who I'm served. That powerful God is not out here to get me. He's out here to be with me. What a perspective. Just think of this awesome God who created the universe and put all these things in place. And I, I won't take the time to go into that universe conversation about how big it is and how great it is. And, and, you know, you can go down just as small as you can go and see the little minute particles, and then they realize, well, there's got to be something. If that is a particle and this is a particle, then there's got to be a substance that's right here and right here that's making up both these things. So there's got to be something smaller that we can see and smaller that we can conceive. So the universe is not only just big, it's, it's just smaller than you can even conceive as well, and it just keeps on going into smaller parts. But that God that created all of that has made a declaration that he loves us. Death and destruction was not his plan. That was a choice that was made by Adam and Eve. He said, look, I'm giving all of this to you. There's only one thing. Look, you're a moral being. There's got to be a standard. Adam and Eve, you were made a moral being. There's got to be a standard. So I'm giving 
all of this earth to you. All of these animals and everything I'm putting under your stewardship. But there's got to be a line somewhere because you are a moral being. So here's the line. Of all of these things out there, there's just one tree. This is not much of a tree, but we'll use it, okay? There's just one tree. You, you've got all of that. Go have fun. Enjoy the waterfalls and the streams that I gave you and the fruit and all the things that have been provided. And, and by the way, these animals right now, they're friendly. You don't have to be afraid of them. So just enjoy. Take a ride on the back of the lion. You know, get up and take a walk with the elephant. Enjoy these things that I provided for you. But the, you're a moral being, so there's got to be a standard. So I've just got this one tree over here, folks. Don't eat, Adam and Eve, don't eat of this tree, okay? Everything else is yours. Just enjoy. I'm making you stewards over it. You take care of it. It's yours. Just don't touch that one tree. Kids, don't eat that cookie in the cookie jar, okay? We're going to save that for dessert. Where's the kid going to go? The cookie jar. But there's that. I got all that. But what is it about that tree that's so fascinating? Oh, Look at that. It's got fruit on it. Man, I've tried that fruit and that fruit and that fruit, but that fruit sure does look good. What is it about human nature that draws us to the very thing that we're supposed to be staying away from? And Adam and Eve, with some inspirational words from the devil, Satan appeared in the form of a snake and said, God really said that to you? Why would he be such a mean God as to keep you from having that one tree. <laughs> you got all that. But that one tree, you won't die. Death won't come to you if you eat that thing. God's just jealous of you. The God that created all of the universe and created all of that and created us, he's jealous of you. Think about it, folks. And so they believed the lie and they took a hold of that fruit and ate the fruit. And because of that... Sin entered into the life of mankind. And now all of creation has been corrupted. There are things spinning out of control. There's destructive forces like hurricanes and earthquakes and, and death. Just think if death did not exist in the earth. Just think everybody. Scripture says it's a common thing for people to have a fear of death that that's a, a thing that's common among mankind around the world. People don't want to die. People are struggling to live. People are eating out of trash cans in places. Why? Not because they like trash can food, but there's something driving them on the inside that they want life. They want to live. And so they're eating things in a desperate kind of way just to promote life because people fear death. But God wants people to have an encounter that transforms their lives. And so God brought his people to Mount Sinai to introduce himself to that. Moses had met God up there on the mountain with the burning bush. And Moses said to him, God, I will go and speak to them and, and speak to Pharaoh, but who do I say is sending me? Moses didn't even know what name to use to refer to God. He was having an experience with God, but he didn't, want, he didn't even know, who do I say? See, there was all kinds of gods. There was Ra, the sun god that the Egyptians worshipped. There, Horus is another one. Uh, Isis and Osiris. I'm, I'm not really good on the Egyptian god names. Haven't spent a lot of time there. But it's all kinds of gods that they worshipped. The scarab, little beetle. That's a good pick, wasn't it? 
But all of these things that they worshipped, and Moses thought, you know, I'm, I'm seeing the burning bush here. I know I'm, you're speaking to me, but who do I say is sending me? And so God, in a powerful way, says, I'll tell you the English, and then I'll tell you what the Hebrew really is, but he says, I am. Tell them that the I am has sent you. In the Hebrew, it is Asher, and I won't be pronouncing it right, so just give me a break. Asher, Ehe, Asher. Okay, but it literally means I am that I am, or I will be, in a more perfect sense, I will be who I will be, meaning I will be everything you ever needed. If you can think of an area of need, I am the answer to that. I will be progressively showing you how great and awesome a God I am. And as you're continuing this journey, you'll be discovering it's like a, 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 uh, an ongoing revealing of who he is. I will show you that I am all sufficient to you. I will show you that I'm everything that you have ever needed, everything that you ever wanted. I will show you that I am the God who knows how to meet that need. And he says, you tell them that that's who sent you, the I am. And so Moses goes back and he makes that declaration to the people. So that whole story unfolds where they come out of Egypt, they come to this mountain of, of meeting, and Moses goes up there and meets with God. And he ends up coming down with this Ten Commandments carved in stone. The God with his own finger carved in the stone. The Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no God before me. He's saying, look, I will be your God. Why did he say that? Folks, if you know people that are, that are believing, this is going to sound hard, but I'm going to go right there, that are believing a lie, and you don't say something to them about it, is that love? If you know someone who, okay, I've been in a lot of different cultures in other countries. I've been around the world and seen things. There, people will cut themselves to try to appeal to God. There are people who will sacrifice children to try to appeal to God. There are people who are taking their livelihood and somehow trying to get a God's attention. If there's a God out there, would you just look at me and would you try to change my circumstances? And in order to do that, I will, and they do some kind of desperate act in order to try to get a God to focus attention long enough. And it's vain. There's no one. They're knocking on the door, but there's nobody home. But God came and met with, with Moses and met with the children of Israel on Mount Sinai, and he revealed to them. So he says, look, folks, I know that for years and years and years and generations and generations, your family have been down in Egypt, and they've been surrounded with all the gods of Egypt, and they've been worshiping all these other gods. But look, I need you to put away all those other gods. All that is knocking on the door, and nobody's home. But I am your God. I'm revealing myself to you but you can have no other gods before me. Don't accept me. Right now, there's cultures that you can go to, and if you go over in the Hindu culture and you tell them about Jesus, people will go over there and do crusades, and people will come, and they'll accept Jesus. But what they do because of their culture, they literally have over a million gods in Hinduism. They will take Jesus and add Jesus to the bookshelf of gods. It's not that they're just being exclusive. Now, there are some people who accept Jesus, and they put all that away, but you have to instruct them say, look, there's only, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. 
So it's putting away all those other things. Clear the bookshelf and focus on the one. And God revealed himself to them. He said, look, no other gods. Put all the other gods away and serve me. And then he came back to verse number 2. And let's just go there to, to Exodus chapter 20. And I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, okay? Y'all know that by now. Starts out in verse 1, says, Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must have no other gods before me. And then he says, look, I'm not that kind of God like the gods that were down there, okay? I'm not that kind of God. He says, you must not take for yourself an idol of any kind or any image or anything in heaven or, or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other God. I lay the sins of the parents on their children, and the entire family is affected, even the children in the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. Let me just put it to you this way. Look, what parents do, the children will tend to follow. You know, we may be tolerant of something in our life. We allow a little, open the door just a little bit, let something into our life, and our kids see that as a normal thing, so they will take it even further. And what happens is the curse that can come into our life can be passed on to other people. Now, we're, as children of God, hopefully that's not the case. But someone that takes on, you know, I've I, I, I worked up when, when I came here on my internship and then I went to Regent University to get my master's and I was going through that program. I helped start a singles ministry in a church in Norfolk, Virginia. It was an inner city church. And in this singles ministry, uh, um, it was a challenge because there was a heavy drug culture in the area. There were people there that they were unchurched, never been, been around church, but they were so immersed in that culture that uh, one thing that was really interesting, when I try, would try to get them to make a decision about what we would do as a, as a group, it was like pulling teeth. You couldn't get anyone to make a decision until I realized that these people had always been in positions where they were being told what to do or, or didn't have responsibilities, so they were not accustomed to being able to make decisions for themselves. And we had to teach them to be able to make a decision for themselves because they were always used to either being told what they had to do or just not, being wor not working as a cohesive group. But I had one guy come to me, and he said, David, you know, he, sa he said, I thank the Lord that he saved my life and delivered me from He was a, a heroin addict at the time. But I said, I thank the Lord for, for saving my life. Let me just clarify. He was a heroin addict before he got saved, not a heroin addict while he was in the group with us. I said he was a heroin addict at the time. But it was before, before he got saved. But God set him free. And he said, you know, the way I grew up, he said, I did not know that there was a life without drugs. He said, my grandparents did drugs. My parents did drugs. My aunts and uncles did drugs. He said, all of my family members did drugs. So when I came up, as soon as I was able to get my hands on it, he did drugs. It was like breathing, like making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It was the norm. I don't mean to offend anybody who's allergic to peanut butter. But it was a, the norm for, for that culture. And, and, and folks, 
You know, we may see people out there in the world or people that are out there doing what comes natural to them because it's all they ever know. And we may take offense and say, well, look at how they're living or look at what they're doing. And uh, Cecile and I had an experience where we sat out at, at uh, the cookout till about 2 o'clock in the morning talking with, wasn't it about 2 o'clock? It was late. One, something like that. It was 2 o'clock by the time we got home. But I'm going to tell you, on Friday night, the clientele at cookout, cookout changes after about 11, 11.30. Things start going a different direction. I'm like, Wilson? Well, there's a lot of foreign tags coming through, too, out-of-state tags. But I'm like, wow, that was different. They had police officers on, you know, sitting out there at a the table the whole time. But when we see people who don't know Jesus do things that don't look like Jesus, don't be surprised and don't be offended. That's all they know. But if we're not willing to do anything about it or say something or help, what right do we have to be offended when they just live the way they're living? That's all they know. We have revelation. We have truth. We have light in our lives. It's our responsibility to have an impact, there's that word, have an impact on darkness. Darkness cannot change itself. But this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. That little bit of light that you've got in your life, you go into a dark room and it doesn't matter where somebody's standing in the room, they can see that flicker. They can see that little light in that room. And they may question it, what is that going on over there? What is it about you that makes you smile in the middle of this difficult situation? What is it about Brooke that makes her have hope when she's going through everything that hope's been going through? There's a light inside of her, and that light is shining in darkness. So God said, you need to put away all those other gods. Don't, God said, don't have idols. Don't have idols. He said, I'm not that kind of God. You don't have to put a statue of me up there and, and, and worship that statue that becomes a distraction. That, what if you don't have the statue? That means you can't pray. What if you can't get to that place? He said, I'm a God who's there. That's one of the names for God, the God who's there. One of his names is Emmanuel, God with us. Not God the idol, not God the statue, God with us. He's a personal God who loves you more than you can imagine. We don't have to have idols. They become a distraction. But what does God look like? You know what's really interesting, and it's a reflection on culture, folks, that you, know, you travel around the world and uh, you go to different places. And Jesus changes the way he looks in some places. You go to some church and he's got blonde hair and blue eyes. You got some churches and his skin's a little darker and his hair's a little curlier. What does Jesus look like? I don't care what he physically looks like. I love the way he loves. See, we try to make a picture or make an idol and we get caught up in how he looks. And folks... It's about a relationship. It's about having a personal experience with God. And I'm going to tell you something. I love that relationship. So he said, don't get caught up in idols. Don't worship idols. Don't, don't 
worship all the things out there. Just have a relationship with me. Verse 5, he talks about, but I, I lavish. He talked about how people who are in sin, that not only are, are they causing judgment on their own life, but they're causing judgment on their children by normalizing sin, and they're passing it down generation after generation. So the next generation has a harder time breaking free, and then it's more entrenched in the following generation, and it becomes even, even harder for that group to, to, to break free. But let me just say something. There's hope. Jesus came for that. But look at verse 6. Here's God's heart. He says, but I lavish unfailing love. He didn't say it for three and four generations. He said, I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. He's, he is having to judge sin for people that are sinning, but it says it's going down three or four generations. He said, but if you'll turn to me, if you'll love me, he said, for a thousand generations, I'll pour blessing on your seed, those who are following after you. That's our God. And then he says in verse 7, I'm going to break from this verse for just a little bit. It says, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. In the New Living Translation, it says, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. It says the Lord, will, the Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. I like to watch a good movie. I don't care for the cursing and things like that that come through in the movies this day that's so common in language. Uh, it's excused in, in certain circles or certain circumstances because that's just trying to communicate. When someone comes to me and they're cursing, I understand. Usually they're just using vocabulary and they're using like exclamation points or try to emphasize what they're saying and things like that. It's just, it's just, it's amazing when somebody finds out you're a pastor how quickly things change though. So sometimes I just introduce myself. Hey, I'm David. So we can find out where folks really are. And, and, uh, I, I don't get offended to that, but it, it hurts me when I hear somebody use the Lord's name in vain. I don't like to hear people flippantly use a name of the Lord or misuse Jesus' name, and I don't like to hear them say God when they're not talking about God or when it's just become a reactionary statement or, or it's used as a, an outburst because something's going on. And, and uh, you know, I know that it happens. I know that if it happens around my household, I'm, I, I, I'm quick to say something about that. That's not going to be something that will be tolerated or common in our household. Believers, I want to just speak to us. If that's become a part of your culture or a part of your language, please reverence the name of the Lord. Not out of some type of legalism, but just out of a devotion you know, I cherish Cecile. I'm not going to use Cecile's name as a curse word. Because <laughs> I love her too much. I care for her too much to do that. I wouldn't abuse her name. Well, how much more our God? We shouldn't be using God's name in place of a profanity. 
So let's just quit it. Let's stop. I hear believers doing that. We need to quit that. But there's, there is an even greater offense. And I believe this is what God was speaking to his people about. You see, he had rescued them from slavery. He had brought them out in this miraculous journey where they were to possess what their father Abraham saw. He saw the land that he had been brought to. He walked and lived in the land, but he never was able to possess the land. So now there is a people of promise who have had the opportunity to come out of slavery and they are getting ready to enter into the land of promise and God is going to give them possession of the land that had been promised to their father Abraham. A part of that was the purpose that he had rescued them was that they could be standard bearers, that they could carry the name of the Lord and be an example to the rest of the earth. Because what God was wanting to do through them was to restore humanity back to a relationship to him. That that event with the tree in the garden so many years ago had stripped mankind of a relationship with God where God could be with his people. God always wanted to be in relationship with the people. But that sin put a barrier. God had to put a barrier because he's a holy God. And if he a holy, was a holy God and came in contact with sin, there would be destruction. His, his holiness has to judge sinfulness. So that's where God's mercy comes in, in between. And what Jesus did on the cross paid the price for our sin. Jesus died so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus substituted himself for us, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we had earned. All that work that we had done all of our life and our ancestors before us, they had earned death for us. But Jesus interjected himself in between the holy God and the penalty of death, and he paid the price for us so that we could have life and we could be restored to this relationship. But God was telling the people, look, folks, I've got a very, I've brought you out of this sinful place. I've brought you out of this place of bondage and corruption and death. I've brought you out of slavery, not just so that you can be blessed, but because I need a people who will represent me in the earth, who will live for me in the earth, because I've got a plan down the road, several generations, where I'm going to send my son, and he's going to die on a cross, but I need a people that he can walk among and, and minister to and a people who will, will, will honor my name and while he is there and when he ends up having to die, but those people will be the stewards, the carriers of, of Christ and the bearers of my name until that time when everything is made right. And so God's telling them, look, I'm bringing you into a special relationship. You're going to be called my people. You are the people of God. This bringing you to this mountain was so I could reveal myself and give you my word. And so from this day forward, you will be the people of God in the earth. And nations all around are going to be looking to you to see what I am like. So if you're going to be the people of God, then don't take my name in vain. Don't put the cloak around you saying you're the people of God, and then live like everybody else. 
Don't say, by the way that we live our lives, it's okay, you know, we're the people of God, but it's okay to, to keep lying and cheating and playing around on your spouse or playing around, you know, being, being immoral in different kind of ways. You can just keep doing just like everybody else does, and it doesn't matter, but just, you know, I go to church on Sunday, and so that means that I'm a good person. No, it doesn't. That's all show. If God doesn't have your heart, he doesn't have you. If all he has is your Sunday and he doesn't have your life, he doesn't really have you. So God's intent with this right here when he says, don't take my name in vain or don't bear my name in vain was don't call yourself the people of God and then not act like it. This whole sermon got wrapped up because I got in the other day and I started studying the names of God. And I've got about 18 pages worth of notes up here on the names of God. So I didn't really know the sermon was going to go this morning the way it has. There's no way I could have covered 18 pages. Everybody said amen. <laughs> but I got a little obsessive about the name of the Lord and what it means and why God chose to reveal himself the way he did. And I got to looking at that, and I saw that just about every time the revelation of when God revealed his names, there are, you, you know, I know if you've been in church for a long time, you know that there's a lot of different names that God uses for himself. We've mentioned a few today, and I'm, I cannot go there, although I'm going, we're going to be here for a long time. I'm not going there. But there's some amazing names that God gives for himself to show us the kind of God that he wants to be to us. What a blessing. Don't go there, David. But folks, when I got to looking back and seeing the first mentions of the name of God, the first mentions in, in Bible, if you've been around for a while, you know, but if you haven't been around, you know that with the first mention of something in Scripture, a truth in Scripture, is usually a significant mention. God's introducing something, and that event, that moment, characterizes a lot of times every other explanation of that word or that, that event later on. It becomes a core understanding that in, is intended to be carried on throughout the rest of Scripture and, and even our understanding today. And when, what's interesting to me was, folks, that when you go back and you see the moments when the names of God was revealed to people, to, to, uh, like we talked about on Mount Sinai with the burning bush where he said, I'm the I am. I'll be everything you ever need. I'll, it'll be an ongoing revelation that I'll be the one to satisfy the things that you need in life. I am that I am. I will be who I will be. When God revealed himself that way, it was a significant revelation that was supposed to be carried out from that time into eternity. We're still discovering who God is. But just about every, and I could say every revealing of God's name was an encounter that somebody had with God. There was a moment of need. There was sometime a desperate situation. And God showed himself in a new and fresh way. And I'm trying, I don't have time to go there. But there's so many great experiences. Maybe we'll have time to go in, in another, another, do a series on it or something like that. But where God revealed himself to people. Revealed himself to Abraham, revealed himself to Moses, revealed himself to the children of God when they had a desperate need. God showed himself by revealing his name. I want to interject something to you right now. 
as a body of Christ, as God's people in the earth. That mantle of responsibility of bearing the name of the Lord, he's cloaked us in that as his people in the earth. Just like the children of Israel were the single avenue that God had created, a, 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 a small little, little nation in the earth, a small people in the earth that God said, okay, I'm going to work through this. And he even told them an insignificance, not because you were great, not because you were special in yourself. You, you're an insignificant people, but I'm choosing you. And through you, I'm going to reveal the Christ. And they sometimes misinterpreted their perspective or their place in all of that. They thought they were great rather than seeing that they were just a conduit or a vessel bearing or creating an opportunity for the Christ to come. Because Jesus came for the whole world, not just for one nation or one people, for everybody. Nobody's excluded. He didn't come. I had this conversation down in South Africa with some students. Look. When God was real wise, because down in South Africa, they really are wrestling. There's a lot of racial unrest and things like that. There's a lot of things getting ready to go on there. I'm, I'm concerned about that and I pray about, but, but there, that's been such a powder keg for so many years. But some of the Zulu students said, you know, why, why was it that Jesus only came to the white people? And I said, no, 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 no. I said, whoever told you that really did not have God's heart. I said, just think about what God did. Jesus' skin color wasn't like my skin color. I said, Jesus didn't send him to the, just to the light-skinned people or to just the dark-skinned people. God's wisdom, he even sent him to a people in the earth whose skin color is kind of in between everybody else, kind of a medium. And I said, he didn't send him to the big nation over here. He didn't send him way off over there. He sent them to a nation that's a very small nation right in the middle of the earth. Why? Because you're sending him to the whole earth. He's a God for everybody. He's a Savior for everybody. He's setting everything in order. But folks, I just want to challenge us today. If there's ever been a people who need to hear, don't take the Lord's name in vain. It may not have to do with the words coming out of our mouth with regards to abuse of his name, but God's children need to hear. We should not be a people that people could look at and slander who our God is because our lifestyles and our actions are misrepresenting the God that we serve. We should not bear the Lord's name in vain. God says in there, look, I will not hold faultless a people who take my name and use it or misuse it. There's, I mean, there's a real strong scripture in there in, in Leviticus chapter 24 that I read. I read to Carla in our devotion in staff meeting the other day. Carla and I have to have staff meeting. There's only two of us there. <clears throat> but we still have staff meeting to get things together for the week talk about what's happened the week before. But, but it, there's a scripture there. It talked about a young man who got in a quarrel with someone. You know, we might make an excuse as to when it's okay to, to mess up. But this guy got in a situation where he was quarreling with an Israelite. They started fighting. And the, the half-Israelite person used the Lord's name as a profanity in that circumstance situation. And you can read the passage if you go to it. But it, it sounds really harsh. It's hard. But that community ended up taking him outside, and they ended up, they, everybody had to go. And they stoned him to death for using the Lord's name in vain. So when is it okay to use the Lord's name in vain? Never. We thank the Lord for his grace. But if you respect the Lord and you love the Lord, don't use the Lord's name in vain.
Okay, I want to, I want to, we've already made that statement. I want to get beyond that because the big picture today is not what comes out of our mouth with regards to the name of the Lord. What's more important is what comes out of our life by the way we live. I just want to encourage you. See, <clears throat> going back to that perspective of Mount Sinai, we can sit and stand looking at the mountain and be in fear that God might judge us or God might send out a point his finger and a lightning bolt goes and zaps us and makes toast out of us, something like that. But that's not the perspective about why God came there and why he gave those rules and regulations on that mountain. The reason why God came there was meet with his people. So we can experience the presence of the Lord. We can come to God without fear of judgment because Jesus paid the price for us. If we will accept him, if we will receive the gift that he gave us, we can come to God, and it may, may be timidly to begin with because we don't really know. and We're kind of testing out the waters, but we can come to God and say, God, I need you to teach me about you. I, I don't know very much about you, but I want to get to know you. And we initiate that, response, that relationship. He already initiated a long time ago, but we can come to know him. And see, what God's perspective was, that coming down on the mountain was that he was giving that people an opportunity to represent him in the earth. The display of his power and his might on that mountain wasn't to bring judgment on them, but to that, for them to recognize what kind of God it was that they were serving. And that, that God was big enough and great enough and more powerful enough and more than enough to handle any kind of problem that might come up against them. You need you need food out in the desert for 40 years? Check, I got that. You need quail for some meat every once in a while? I got that. You're out in the desert with over a million people, you need some water? Strike that rock. Next time, don't strike it, just speak to it. But we'll bring water and supply a whole people like that on the desert. That's the kind of God we serve. But God's perspective that he wants to get through to us. And folks, if we don't reverence him, then we negate our ability to be able to represent him well. And God can't entrust his glory to us. God can't entrust his power to us the way that he would like to if we're misrepresenting him. He has to pull back. But folks, if we will dedicate ourselves and say, Lord, yes, I will bear your name. I will take your name. I'll wear the badge. I'll live a life in such a way that people can see your glory. I will tell people about what you've done. I will be a people that you can work through in the earth. Then, folks, what God can do, we will find ourselves coming to possess what Christ died for. We will find ourselves stepping into all that God purposed for his people. There's a scripture, one of the, one of the names for God, I am going there, one of the names for God that's used only maybe one time in the Bible is Jehovah Shammah, or Yahweh Shammah. The word Jehovah or the word, or the word Yahweh are exactly the same four-letter words that in order to be able to say it, they've added vowels to. So it's Y-H-W-Y-H, -H, Jehovah, V-H, Y-H-V-H, excuse me, Y-H-V-H, when you try to put it in English, they put a J there, and it's J-H-V-H. -H. Thank you, Ralph. Ralph's confirming for me. 
But they added vowels to it to make it easier to pronounce. So really, Yahweh or Jehovah is really the same, the same, the same name. And it's a covenant-making name. It means God wanted to come into relationship with his people. And then the word Shama added to it means is there. It means that Jehovah or Yahweh, the covenant God, is there. The relational God is there. And that's used in Ezekiel chapter 48 about the new city and how that finally God, with excitement, they're able to make a declaration about the city of God. That it's, a, it's a term that's used for Jerusalem. But it talks about God is there. Just think about people all around the world doing all kinds of things, trying to find a God, trying to find help. But to be able to look to a place and say, God is there. Oh, my goodness, you need help. You need healing. You need, you need uh, deliverance from something. You need to get free from something. You, you need a remedy. Where are you going to go? I know where you can go. God's there. You can go there and find God. God can help you there. But can we put that in a today perspective, folks? We're not looking just to a walled city. Believe it or not, God's called us a new Jerusalem. We are become, if you look at that illustration in Revelation where it's talking about a new Jerusalem, it talks about a bride adorned for her husband. God's intention is for us to be the place where people say, God's there. Because they look at our lives and they see something different. They see a character, a nature, a love. They see a, a willingness to be able to help, to see a display not only of our own abilities and our own strengths, but they see a supernatural dynamic in our lives and they say, I don't know what it is about that person. I don't know what it is about Kellyanne, but she sure does smile a lot. I think God's there. I don't know what it is about Ralph, but when he speaks the word of God, my goodness, there's just a living there's something about it that I can really connect with. God's there. I don't know what, it's about, what it is about Chris and Denise and, and their family and how they love people and they want people to know about Jesus, but there's something different about them. God's there. Why? Because we are people who have taken his name. We've become that city of the Lord where he's come to dwell in the midst of his people, in me, in you. And people are getting a taste of the real God, not just on a paper with ink, but on the words and on the life lived in front of them, because we, through Jesus, become living word to them. We're not just saying religious statements and not just being, we're not all the trappings of robes and all kinds of things that try to look churchy and try to look holy. No, we live it. We express him. We release him. The word manifest. Let him out of the box. Let your light shine. So that's what we're called to be, that kind of people. I just want to, I just want to take a moment. I'm going to wrap up. But Adam's dad really challenged me last week. Um, Adam's dad asked some really weighty questions. He's a good question asker. You can't answer yes or no. It's got to be an explanation. But we, we sat down after church last Sunday at the house after lunch, and he came and sat down beside me and turned towards me and started asking me questions about my sermon last week. And I thought, I have never had anybody <laughs> dig so deep after a sermon 
But he said, how, how can people make personal application of what, what you shared? What would be a good way for them to be able to do that? He said, I know that, you know, of the congregation there, he said, do you think, and, and I'm not necessarily going to do this today, but he said, do you think we could maybe ask people to stand up and share how they can take what was said and how they can actually apply it to their lives and what a difference it will make in their life and, you know, how they can see that God has told them to take that and use it in their life? He said, because that might help encourage other people that maybe haven't figured out how to apply it yet, and they can see, well, this is what God says I can do with this. But folks, isn't that the essence of the gospel? Because if all we're doing is hearing and we're not doing any doing, we've got to do some doing. So what do we do about being that people? What do we, how do we express that truth? How do we take the name of the Lord and be that people. That's what God wants to get through to us. I'm going to ask you if you would bow your heads right where you are, okay? Look, I want to give an opportunity today. If there's somebody here, I know all of this may be new to you, but you've never had the opportunity to receive Jesus. You, don't, you have heard today that Jesus paid for anything in your past that was wrong. He paid even for the sin that was passed down to you that you didn't even have anything you weren't even a part of it, but it just got pushed onto your generation from the generations past. But you don't have any way to pay that debt, but you're carrying the heaviness of it around you. It's completely out of your strength to be able to live good enough or to do anything to be free from that. But you heard for the first time today that there's an opportunity if you be free from that because Jesus paid the price. If you're interested in receiving that gift that, that Jesus provided for you and you're here today, would you just raise your hand? We'll help explain it to you. If you are here today hearing my voice <laughs> and you're a believer and you feel like you can get better at this, if you recognize that there's things that have been going on in your life, maybe just got caught up in the moment, maybe there's some things that you got caught up in a moment and it's become a lifestyle. But you feel like that you would represent the Lord better if that changed. If you're here and that's you, would you just raise your hand? We're going to pray together. Thank you for your honesty. Is there anybody else? Thank you for your honesty. Look, folks, he came to set us free. Can we stand together? Let's just make a dedication in this prayer today. Now, for those of you who raised your hand, I want you to see something. We, we talked this morning about this spiraling funnel that's winding out of control, that this thing is gone to the place where there's no recovery. It's, it's just spinning out of control. There's no hope. We don't want anybody to be in that place. And if anybody feels like your life is starting to go like that, please reach out to us because we're going to pour everything that we can to try to help you out of that situation, okay? We're brothers and sisters together. We may not have grown up in the same household, but God's made us one. But in that perspective of that spinning funnel, spinning out of control, I want you to see something else. I, say, I want you to see a river of life flowing from heaven to you right now. 
that there is much more resource being made available to you from heaven than anything that the enemy could ever take away from you. God is channeling life to you. God is giving you the opportunity to walk with him, and he will, if you'll keep turning to him even when you fail, God will help you get up and be successful at this thing. Because he started you on this journey, and he doesn't intend for you to, to he's not going to leave you alone just because you make a mistake, okay? Heavenly Father, I thank you, dear God, for this body of believers, dear Lord. God, I know that we are, there, there's a good people here, dear God. There are loving people. God, I, I want to thank you for the churches around this town, dear God, who are calling on your name this morning. Lord, I pray that you would awaken a fire in all of us, dear God. Stir us up, stir us up, stir us up. And Lord, help us to live in such a way, dear God, that you're well represented in the earth. God, we're going to do our part. God, and we're going to make a place for you here to do all that you desire to do. God, and we're going to infuse life into other churches, dear God. We're going to infuse life into other believers we come in contact with and cause them to be ignited and on fire and excited about their relationship with you. But God, we're going to let our light shine to the world. We're not going to closet ourselves away and just glow away like a whole bunch of little glow bugs in the church building, dear God. We're going to take out into the world and, and be a light in the darkness. God, so that people can have hope and can realize that there's more to life than just getting the next fix or getting the next paycheck or overcoming the next obstacle, dear God. There's a bigger purpose to their life. And God, we're going to give you all the praise and glory for all that's done. One day, we're going to all stand before you, dear God. Everything that could have been hidden, dear God, is going to be fully exposed. And we're going to stand there and say, it is by the grace of God that we're here today. And we give you all the glory for everything that's been accomplished. So, Lord, may your blessings rest on this people. Use us, dear God, to accomplish your purposes. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 May the Lord bless you. Amen.